Over the course of more than 75 films and TV shows, um, he's taken on the roles of sound editor, sound effects editor, dubbing editor, supervising sound editor and sound designer. And he's worked on a diverse range of TV shows and films such as Game of Thrones, Generation Kill, Band of Brothers, The Imitation Game, Batman Begins, Fantastic Mr. Fox, The Hours, and of course the Harry Potter series. Um, he's won a BAFTA for his work on The Lakes and two Emmys for his work on Band of Brothers and Generation Kill. Um, I want to come on to sort of a career as a whole, but let's start with these two sequences because they sort of the Harry Potter is interesting because for me that was the first scene in Prisoner of Azkaban that sort of said you're in a different world now. This is very different to one and two. Um, it's much darker. Um, could you talk a little bit about your discussion with Alfonso Cuaron and, and what he wanted to do with the franchise and where he wanted to take the film? I think anyone having discussions with Alfonso is going to be a very difficult conversation because it's, it's always going to be a challenge. No one really understood or knew what I think he was up to on Prisoner of Azkaban. And I, because I was a crew member who'd started on the series, I'd done a couple before it, and I was kind of local to the studios. I got the job of going on early before the rest of the crew came on. I had some connection with Alfonso, who was actually shooting at the time. It, it was a, a strange event because it wasn't like the other films. They, they had a sort of... Each film has an energy of its own, and even though these are big blockbusters, you get a sense when you arrive on a film set of what's going on by the members of the crew. They give you a fairly good understanding of what's happening. And it felt like there was a certain amount of chaos going on and um, it was all a bit not what everybody was used to in their comfort zones. And uh, I found it interesting because I wasn't, I'd never met Alfonso. I knew he was a Mexican director. I'd seen uh, Il Tu Mama Tambian as his yep. film. And I uh, thought it was very curious on how he got onto doing a Harry Potter film, I don't know. But he was definitely taking it in a different direction. And as we know now, because it's, obviously he's done a lot more since then, He's a brilliant director and makes incredible films. But he drives his crew hard, and it, it meant that for us in post-production, we were going to get the same treatment the crew had been through, really, I think. Um, and obviously he had his own um, desires as to what the soundtrack should sound like. And I don't think he even stayed anywhere near what the other film sounded like. Um, and in some ways, there was an essence of Harry Potter, which was let's try and keep the real world real, you know, the cars and the doors and the chairs and, the, and everything that was normal, not magic world. Um, but even that, I think, was up for, up for grabs with Alfonso. So he really wanted to get a soundtrack which was different, and it was, it was quite a struggle for us all. But he had a, uh, Richard Beggs, who was his sound designer, came over from the United States, and he was uh, with uh, a guy called David Evans, who I'd worked with before as a Canadian guy, uh, and then the rest of us who were mainly British crew. Um, doing the post-production sound on it. And that, that particular scene I remember quite well because I did a lot of the layout sounds for it when we were what's called temping. They tend to uh, do a temporary soundtrack as the film's evolving. Uh, and so the bus existed. You know, it was built, it, it had an engine, it went up and down. And I said, well, can we get the bus out? You know, so we had a big recording session with this bus. And I thought we would be hearing the sound that I'm so familiar with, which is the sort of route master bus, but no, 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 this wasn't a normal bus because it had two buses on top of itself. It was like an old coach, so it just sounded like a boring diesel truck. And we ran it up and down the runway and the stuntman took it off onto the grass. We had a lot of fun recording it. But really none of that sound made it into the movie. Uh, it's made it into my library, um, but it hasn't, uh, hasn't really found 
any use in the movie because that was not what was needed. And, and in a lot of films, we strive as sound people to acquire the original or the, the natural sound. But in fact, what you're trying to do for the audience at the other end of it is guide them. You know, sound is like a guide, and you can just do it all with natural sound like you're doing a documentary. But in some cases of drama, drama you want to take their ears to a different place. You want to mislead them or um, basically enhance something or hi- make it hyper-real. Um, in this case, it was retro-real. So, you know, the bus became a steam-driven kind of uh, entity, and even its horn was something from another world. But it is the, it's in the film is the first point where we go off into magic land, really. Um, and it has its own own kind of dimension and it was in some ways lacking in the usual films because the usual films really went to that place very very quickly and very boldly using all the facilities of the modern cinema we didn't or should I say Alfonso didn't it was a much more contained and, and quiet event what I, I, I particularly like and the reason I wanted to include this, uh, the, the bus at the end is that it's the sort of thing I could imagine being in a Terry Gilliam film. It's got that Very kind nice. of steampunk, and it's it's almost like the bus is a living thing. It's sort of wheezing its way. It's it's like a heavy breath, and not just the sound of a motor. Well, and often, you know, in, in sound post sessions with directors, when you offer up material, they go, "It's not working," you know, and you go, well, "You know, what are you looking for?" And they don't know what they're looking for. They haven't got a clue. They don't know what it's like. What colour should that be? Or you know, they start talking in metaphors and things. But you have to kind of find what they're looking for by offering up material and sometimes they may talk about it in a sort of nostalgic way that they remember you know being on a, a train when they're a child or something but then you, you you kind of have to look for it and in in Richard Beggs's case he had to find this bus and a lot of lot of decision making on that particular film sound wise was very last minute we'd done a lot of different versions of it I mean there was an awful lot of experimentation with the music as well which was very much a studio-based music track. Really, Alfonso didn't want to go that route. He wanted to go a completely different route. So the music editor he hired to temp the thing, who I worked with quite closely, really earned his money. He never went home. You know, I'd say, bye, it's 9 o'clock, I'm going home. He'd be there till 11 at night, cutting up stuff, and he couldn't use score from other films. Alfonso didn't like that. He wanted to use material from classical music, harpsichord pieces. The guy was even playing it on his keyboard, trying to produce the results that Alfonso wanted. And we were only temping. You know, we weren't... This wasn't the finish. This was on the way there. So it was quite a tough, tough call. And I, I should have known that when I looked at the very sort of worn-out faces of the crew when I arrived. You know. um, moving to Woman in Black, the, one of the reasons I wanted to show them together is, is that the fantastic crackling of the electricity. And then as she tears away at the gauze and makes her way into the hospital ward, again, you've, you've got this sound. And I said at the start, it's conventional in terms of horror. It, it plays to certain tropes, but what I liked about it is it's much more heightened, than, and particularly than the first film. But obviously the time period is different as well. Yeah, I mean... We're really sort of a double act to when you're doing a sequel, you're doing, you're doing something that's somebody, you're walking in other people's footsteps. So the, the soundtrack of the first film was the dictator of the second film to a certain extent, although I had a fairly wide brief as to you know, what we were going to do with things like the rocking chair and stuff like that. But that, that genre of filmmaking, that genre of scary movie without blood, is all sound. It's all, it's all sonic work, it's all creepy footsteps and the little pin drops, the little tiny sounds are the most important they become a vital uh, way of getting, getting you to feel engaged with it and obviously to do what it says on the tin which is to scare everybody at the right moment so you know, unfortunately the previous film had the way in which it, done, it went about that which was this sort of shock, visual, stingy kind of sound so we obviously had to follow that, that pathway but that particular scene was interesting because I tried to 
you know, with the with the uh, swing doors, which are real in the film, but surreal. I wanted to do something with the doors, so I did use a real swing door. But, you know, there's a, a sort of electrical buzz underneath the door opening and a harmonica as well, sort of hidden away underneath all the ingredients. Um, and the little sparky lights inside, which are the flickery lights, I was going to sit there and sort of cut them so that they all fitted every little nuance of the, of the lighting. But I thought, you know what? It's a dream. You know, things in dreams don't sync up. Things go a little bit weird. So I just let it run. So it's just literally the track as I just put it into the machine and it played. It seemed right. Turned it down, put a bit of reverb around. It felt comfortable and it fitted the film. There's not a lot else in there. The only other weird thing connecting the two films together is what I'm a bit worried about. I can't quite remember where I, what was the cradle. In other words, I know I looked in the playground recordings for squeaky metal noises because you go metal and you get 10,000 choices. So you go, mm, maybe uh, let's just search on one drive, you know, let's search in one project, and still another 10,000 choices. And eventually I found a sort of creek that sort of worked with it, but I wanted to have a, a theme that was the rhythm of the rocking chair versus the rhythm of the cradle in a subconscious way, so ho hopefully get the audience to feel that they're in a familiar ground because the sort of first time she starts to start see things in the house. Um, but, you know, it feels very close, the sound feels very close to what was happening in the playground in Harry Potter, Although in that, I put a lot of things into the playground from recordings that we'd made of playground sounds, uh, but they were changed out at the last minute. You know, we swapped out quite a few things, so I can't quite remember. The, it's the trouble with sound. We end up using lots of elements from various places. Unless you label everything particularly well and are that kind of person, you tend to lose touch with where it originates from. So I have stuff that just gets not recycled, but it goes down the generations from one project to another and gets, you know, processed a bit of a different way or it gets slowed down, speeded up, reversed. You know, it turned into, I've used another plug-in for that or I've gone out and real-worlded it and played it back through speakers and then recorded it in an echoey room. You know, you can't remember, but that's because it's a very big paint tin. You know, sound is, you've got a lot of colours to play with uh, and you can never stop uh, recording, so... I want to come back to the, the library a little later, but mm. I mentioned the different roles you've taken on uh, over the years. Could you sort of distinguish between them in terms of a, traje a trajectory of your career? Well, for me or, yeah. for, or for... for you generally with each of the roles, how they, how they shifted in terms of responsibility and the areas that you're responsible for? I think, I've, I think I've tried. I mean, I've been an assistant. I was a runner once. I don't know how many people here have been runners in their career, but I started at the bottom. Um, and I've, you know, I've worked as an assistant, mainly in picture at the beginning. But we, the time I started was another age. It was the age before the computers. It was mechanical technology, and you had to go through a certain process to get to the next stage. You know, so quarter-inch tape, 16 millimeter film, spools, 35 mil sprockets, bits of sellotape. It's, a, it's an age gone by. And then the computer came along, and we start again. You know, and it's, a, it's a reinvention of the wheel to a sense. But in, in, in sound terms, the work itself doesn't change. In other words, I may operate the machinery in a different way. I may find myself reaching for the material on a digital format rather than a, an analogue format. But the concept of layering of sound and putting sound to picture hasn't really changed. It's just got more sophisticated. And, you know, and I was just basically working my way from the assistant grade into working as a sound editor. But it became... I, I travelled around the network. We were talking earlier about career paths. And I've worked in Birmingham here, you know, uh, as an assistant editor, picture editor... And this were days when ATV, which I don't know, not enough people in the room in my age group, but there's a big hole in the ground just around the corner from the mailbox, which was the ATV centre, a television company that no longer exists, and they used to make a 
uh, a show called Tis Was in there. So, you know, I worked as a freelance assistant editor on a TV show for kids. Not doing sound, I might add, but uh, it then led to other things. And I travelled back to London and found my way into uh, supervising films, uh, mainly low-budget films. So I started becoming an effects editor and, and pretty much taking work that was mainly effects-bound and then eventually drifting into sound design. But I did have colleagues, because I'd travelled around this country working in different network companies. I'd made friends and acquaintances and, and people that I knew, and animators. I, worked, I lived and worked in Bristol with the HTV days doing this with Robin Assured, and the animators were making films down there, which was the Aardman-type stuff. As Aardman was forming, there was a, 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 an equivalent company called the Bolex Brothers, a sort of like the, um, the Antichrist of Aardman, really, and they made darker, very much more adult-type plasticine animation, and I got the job doing the soundtrack for um, David Borthwick on a thing called The Secret Adventures of Tom Thumb, which I'm still very proud of. And it was, uh, at that time, the cusp of the technology. In other words, we were going from film to digital, but it hadn't quite taken the dominance that it has now. So I, was, I actually made... That didn't have a budget. I mean, it was made with love over a long period of time. And I was employed in London in a post-production studio using a, a digital system called the Synclavier system. And I did pretty much the whole movie using that system. Um, but we had to do voices, and we did voices in another machine called an audio file. And some of the mix was done on film, on sprocketed film. So it was a sort of a mishmash of, of um, technology. And it was a bit like the movie, because these guys were animators and they didn't use high-tech cameras. They were called the Bolex Brothers because they used a 16mm clockwork Bolex but they had a video assist and they sort of cheated by looking at the frames as they were animating. But it was a very, very interesting project and terribly creative. And I then realised this is what I wanted to do. You know, I liked this. I liked the invention thing. I liked the sort of making things from small sounds or going out in the middle of the night and standing in a, in a forest trying to get one particular call from a fox because that's what's going to make the scene work. And things. So was it sort of a nat was it the natural move... Uh, uh, the trajectory of your career that, that got you more and more interested in sound and it just happened to be that way and you could have gone elsewhere or was there something sort of right at the beginning you thought, no, uh, somehow I am going to end up in sound? I think uh, I intended to be a picture editor, I think. Right. Um, I think consciously that was what I intended to do. But um, somehow or another, because of this role that I mentioned as in, in the film days of... The assistants tended to do the soundtrack. You worked as assistant editor, you were the assistant to the editor, so you sunk the rushes, you did. You helped him cut the movie. And then when it came to the end, he went to the pub and you did the sound. You know, that was how it ran. So I ended up doing the sound, and I learnt a lot. You know, I learnt things as I was going along, and I was thinking, this is quite interesting how I can now modify... We were having trouble with dialogue scenes, you know, some of the dialogue wasn't well recorded, or we were trying to cheat angles across. And I found ways of taking all the takes that had been recorded of that particular scene and just literally editing out all the syllables from the words and then cutting them on the front to get rid of mic bumps or changing the performance of things. And it taught me that you, there was much more control to be had in sound because you weren't dictated to by what you saw on the screen. And if you did it on film, it would look like an intentional jump cut. But you could actually just take the sound from a completely different place. And as long as you just got away with a syllable, you could sometimes improve the uh, start of a word. And the fact that in films you get overlap and sound recorders will go nuts when they get overlap, you know, because they just know when it gets to the editing room they're not going to have that separation for the editor to be able to cut from one angle to another. They're dictated to. Uh, and you could cheat the overlaps by getting rid of them, by going through all the other takes where hopefully they didn't do an overlap. 
in if it's a it's a it's performed more than once. Obviously, this doesn't apply if you're doing documentaries because mm. nothing happens twice. Um, but it did it fascinate me that at that point. And you know, and as the machines evolved, you know, when the audio file came in, the accuracy of being able to do that became greater. You know, doing on film bits of tape and quarter inch, it's all a bit very very crude. But then. You know, the Beatles did uh, Sergeant Pepper, and that was on quarter-inch tape, so, you know, they did pretty well with that. So it, just because the gear's there doesn't necessarily mean it gives you, in essence, the skills to, to exercise something or get the result. It's your mindset. It's what you try and achieve. You might be able to get to that route by not using digital technology, you know, and actually go and uh, find an old piece of equipment that might might get that sound for you. So I'm, I'm always up for experimenting. Um, we're going to look at something later, but... An editor friend of mine said to me, oh, I'm really inter- interested in guitar pedals. I know nothing about guitar pedals. So I went to a music show and borrowed a couple, and they were fascinating. You know, they distort sound, they, they alter the kind of characteristics of it, they change the envelope shape of things, they put a real grit to things, which is what you want when you're playing guitar. But putting sound effects through them, never, I never really conceived of doing that. But th- those are the sort of things that are out there. Um, and that, that always, that sort of, I think that fascination stopped me from being a picture editor, because I sort of drifted off and got more interested in the, the nuances of sound than I was in the nuances of um, double action cuts and, you know, getting uh, the rhythm of the scene correct and things. So let's look at actually approaching different projects. Do you tend to have a specific MO way of approaching each project um, in sort of preparation and research? Um, or is it I down to each individual project? I think each thing is different. I mean, there is obviously, you know, you've got to watch the damn thing. You've got to kind of sit there and note what you think is the most important parts of the, of the arc of the narrative and, and what, what key areas really need help. Um, but generally, I mean, if it's a project, a big project, um, I'd read, you know, if there's a written material, there's a book on there, about, but you know, I'd read whatever's available. I'd, I'd immerse myself in that particular subject matter and find out a little bit about it. I'd go on, you know, I'd surf the net, find out things... Um, if it's something I don't have, like it's sound I don't have, I then put feelers out through contacts or, or just generally anyone I know in the world who might be able to get me that sound. And I do this thing of trading with other sound editors in, in different parts of the world. And, it, and you know, I'll buy it if I have to. But, you know, it's about um, getting the right thing for the project that you're doing. But I don't think I could say every project was the same. I mean, mm. obviously, you know, medieval fantasy is one thing, you know, um, Modern warfare is another. Period warfare is slightly different. You know, monster movies completely different things. So you're working from different palettes. You know, I, I do look at the collections of sounds I've got and see where I've worked the last year. You know, the sort of nature of the sounds that I've collected because they're all going in that direction. You know, I've sort of been thinking, you know, I need to get more bird atmosphere. So I'm doing something that's very atmospheric. You know, and have I got any Bavarian wood crows? You know, and things that I would never normally have. And I generally seek out trying to find out ways of getting it. I did a German film last year and found myself obsessed with German boots for some peculiar reason, and I didn't want to actually um, get Foley to do the, the boot side of it and, and sent messages down the chain to say if there's any way you could record them in, 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 coming into the room and going out. And the sound recorders did a beautiful job and got some really natural sounds of these German boots, you know, because it's a very distinct sound, I think, that, that thing, and it just made me feel, because they were the threat in the film, you know, that these, these officers are coming and you hear these boots coming. But I've also got recordings of soldiers' boots, uh, in other words, you know, English boots, with, uh, like, like, almost hobnail, walking off down corridors, and I try and get them in the movie, even if they're not in the foreground part of the film. They're an off-screen or they're, they're something, an atmospheric because they're a very distinct sound, 
and they're not a thing you can fake. You can try it, but you know these boots have been polished a thousand times, and they they sort of croak as they go down the corridor, even though it's off screen. And that's to me is that's an important ingredient. So I would go off and research. How am I going to get hold of this? Or do I have that in my collection? Or does John or Fred or one of my friends have that in his collection? Perhaps I could trade with them. You know. So that's that's my research, if you like. Um, I actually remember the first time I saw uh, Batman Begins, um, the packed cinema, and you've got all that death, destruction, people blowing up, flying everywhere. And that final sequence where he's hanging off the end of a cliff, it's just that moment where Liam Neeson goes over and this guy about two rows behind me went, oh, it's got to hurt, <laughs> as opposed to what just happened the previous five minutes. Um, let's, let's go with the Western, first of all, the high-low country. Um, one of the reasons I wanted you to talk about that, and I know it's, it's quite a long time ago, is that we're not dealing with a typical Western. It is a Western that's set in the mid-20th century. And so you don't have this 19th century sound that's just horses no. and dialogue. You've also got cars. Mm-hmm. And you ha- it was amazing watching it again to have this sense that the whole film feels contemporary, even if we're like the earlier part of that scene. We are out in what's perceived to be classic Western territory. Yeah, it was a very interesting project. It was one of those jobs where it only had a short schedule, but the um, studio didn't particularly uh, go with what Stephen had in mind. So there was a bit of a rethink, and we were still employed, which is unusual because normally we're just laid off. But um, we went on a bit longer, so I had some more time to sort of refine things. And I didn't have at that time a good collection of stuff that would be called uh, American. You know, in other words, I'd never done a cowboy movie before, so it was kind of new ground to me. And the cattle don't make cow, cow noises that our cows make, and it's very dry and very arid. And uh, as Ian's mentioned, there's this sort of sense of old period cars going past every so often in this sort of isolated space that was in the film. I, I personally found the film quite engaging because it was very slow and it was very uh, melancholy and it had a, had a great atmosphere about it, although it never really did very well in the, in the box office. But as a soundtrack, I know I watched it in, in Everyman uh, in Mayfair, I think it was. And I have to say, it sounded really, really good at the end of the mix. But the mix was a long journey. It was quite a tough mix. Um, and doing that film was very interesting because I wanted to get things like, you know, the sense of when they're with the animals, that the animals are breathing, they're very present. You know, that scene where he's, he's holding it on the ground. And the flies and the wind and the dust and all the other things. And then he brushes and cleans up and goes off with Mona later on in the evening in the car. But it's just, it's got lots of um, atmospherical parts in it, which is dead quiet. And that's the one thing that's quite good about the cinema in terms of sound is you can do this dynamic range thing, which you can just take everything down to a much lower uh, register. And if the film isn't, is just driven by dialogue and is not driven by action sequences, you can be quite intimate with the sound. So again, going back to the small sounds, they're the things that, that come through. There are bar scenes in it where the shot, they're drinking out shot glasses. And I made a whole thing about getting recordings of particular shot glasses on tables in an, in an acoustically correct room rather than run with the foley. And, you know, the way they pour liquor and just all those things. I remember from watching cowboy movies, you know, the man walks in. It wasn't kind of Spurs action, but it was it was a kind of a need to sort of get kind of genuine about it. And I, I enjoyed doing it. I did another cowboy film, which was, again, not again greatly seen over here because it was made by a very crazy French director called, in French, Blueberry, and I think the Americans called it The Renegade. But it's a, a cowboy movie in its true form, but absolutely nothing to do with cowboys because it was called a shamanic western. So most of the film 
uh, has a sort of hallucination sequences in it, which is probably the fun, most fun film I've ever done because nobody knew what any of this sounded like and anything went, and I couldn't use anything electronic. But it was still a cowboy movie because it had scenes outside of these hallucinations which were cowboys and Indians, you know, running along, being chased, firing Winchester rifles, the whole thing. Fantastic, you know. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I used a bit of high-low in it. Um, how tough is it to to get the recording, the location recording, because that's one of the things that got me, is that this, you've got, when you listen to it with surround sound, you have the sound of a cow over here, hmm. and the cattle going past, and you've also got to mix the the actual dialogue in with that. How much of a challenge was well, that? Well, I mean, I, I, no, we've got a mixed audience here. I mean, in some ways, that is, in essence, what re-recording's about. You know, after I've done my bit, and the, the production uh, recordist has done his work, and the Foley editor's done his work, the ADR guy's done his work, everybody's pulled together and we've collaborated, because that's what sound ultimately is, not me. It's a lot of other people involved doing different elements of the soundtrack. It gets under the hands of the re-recording mixer, and it gets mixed, and decisions are made in cooperation with the director and his, his needs and his desires, and obviously we have music composition to deal with at that stage. But things, I find, the most fascinating thing for me is... Um, We'll put a lot into it, and you get very attached to things. But you have to you have to sometimes say goodbye to them, because they aren't what's re- required. Or alternatively, the level of what they're played at is minute. In other words, they're almost invisible. But that is because you're, what you're trying to do in the soundtrack is focus the sound, so you get people to listen to certain things. So you've no- you've noticed a cow in the surround channels. You know, uh, you know things that I did in the soundtrack. We did so many things. I can't remember every nuance, but they, they were. Some of it was intended, some of it was accidental, and some of it can be as simple as the music cue finishes in a certain place, thus leaving an empty area of the film. And because that area has that little in the distance, that pips in. Your 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 brain computes. I hear Cowan behind me. That's quite nice. And you like it or you don't like it. But that's that's what sound does. It is a subconscious uh, effect to complement the visual image. So the work that we do, and we sh- I think as sound people should never get too attached to things because other people see it and hear it in different ways. And then, you know, you're looking at the other extreme, which is the Batman example, yeah. and there you're being assaulted from every side by sonic noises. You know, it's just a concophony of, of dynamics for a particular reason. And um, yet, and yet the, originally, the, the, one, the first clip I was looking at, possibly as, as going through with Batman Begins, I don't even remember, he has a, um, a rehearsal, a practice fight with Liam Neeson um, on a frozen lake, and he hear this most amazing cracking sound as, as the ice as it's shifting and they're fighting on it but what got me with this and I mentioned just earlier is you've got the sound of a squeaking rubber yeah. of his outfit he's wearing and yet you've got the bombast of uh, a Hans Zimmer big Hans Zimmer score playing almost wall to wall throughout the film and yet there's so much detail that you still manage to layer I think, into it I mean uh, as Batman Begins goes I think uh, as a British we were a British sound crew doing that film uh, I think we did really really well it was very very difficult uh, for all of us, there was a Canadian amongst us, uh, David Evans again, who I worked with on Harry Potter. He cut that scene on the lake that you've mentioned with the ice, did a really beautiful job. Everybody, we well worked really, really hard for it and didn't get a lot of thank yous, to be honest. And, you know, that's part of the game, I suppose. Um, the soundtrack itself, as they all stand up, because there's many of them now, Dark Knight, etc., they're all very different, but they're all very loud and... Um, the director did not want to use any form of, of replacement dialogue. So any of the dialogue in the film 
in that one and all the others, I think, was pretty much the original, what was recorded on the day. There's so little ADR put in, he just doesn't like doing it or doesn't want to do it. And so we inevitably have to work with quite poor quality sometimes if they've got background behind them or something, and it has to get buried in amongst other things. But with a music score at that sort of dynamic, and you know, you've got explosions, you've got sword clangs, the ninja outfits, uh, the Foley editor, Derek Trigg, uh, had them all sent so we all had them in the cutting room, so I wanted to dress up as a ninja. But they were leather, I think. Uh, or he, I think we had, you know, he added some more sounds to it. Yeah. But, but, you know, they, sometimes what you see is not always what you get. So the costume maker, it looks great, but doesn't sound so hot. So we have to augment it. But, you know, the, the, the brief there was really, this is not an explosion sequence. This is a gunpowder plot kind of event. So the explosions really have to be a bit contained, really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the the whole process went through a couple of different loops. Technically, we, we were using a method at the time which was now pretty much standard over here in the UK, which is busing of tracks. So you may work with hundreds of tracks, but we tend to work them in elements. So we contain uh, elements of the sound in a bus group, and that then roots itself out of one five one output. Uh, and so for this scene, which is highly complicated, lots of different things going on, there was quite a few groups to it. And the mixer, who turned out in the end to be Laura Hirschberger, a woman from America, who's mixed quite a lot of movies that are high dynamic stuff, and is a really good mix, I have to say. Um, she wanted to go conventional, so she wanted uh, to open up the tracks and do this scene. This is, the, I think, one of the first scenes we pre-mixed. So she mixed this conventionally like we used to do in the old days. I consider it as we did in the old days. And in the United States, it seems to be somewhat done more that way, which is track for track. So they literally go mono, 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 stereo, stereo, stereo. And they do the panning and they do the kind of uh, positioning of the sound and the EQ and everything. Uh, and that process we did, and we pre-dubbed it that way. Uh, and it took ages, absolutely ages, because there was quite a lot of ingredients. And she did keep saying, Andy, you got a lot of stuff here. <laughs> and we got through it, and we got a result. And uh, I'd kept a mix back, which was my sort of crash mix, which is out of all my buses before we started. And we did a quick kind of resume of where we were at with, with the one that she'd done, and then we played... She'd kindly played my version, which was different. There was a big difference because she had much more control over certain ingredients. Uh, and then she decided, she made an executive decision that we would be going the bus route from here on because she knew she couldn't pre-mix the movie this way. There was, you know, Batmobile that we, she hadn't heard yet and other things to do. And it was there was a lot of material. And it was a very uh, difficult soundtrack for us because the movie never stopped moving. It was being recut every day. So we had lots of material and we did a couple of temps uh, and all that stuff had to be kept in sync with the new picture every time. So, And we had a fairly small, slim crew by American standards, and it was a very, as I say, a different, difficult journey for us because we were obliged to stop doing any sound editing and then get the, the, the soundtrack in sync with the last new version and realise this is not going to work. We need to get more people on, you know. So another team of people arrived and they did the conforming work and we carried on doing sound design. So James Boyle and myself worked really hard. He mainly concentrated on, on the Batmobile and did a, a superb job but the end of it, it had we ended up with a very, very loud mix uh, which we watched in Leicester Square and I think I came out slightly ringing in the ears hence I had my hands over the, my ears when we were listening to that and it is too hot it is way, way too loud that film is definitely too loud um, and I do believe the studio did turn it down a little bit uh, when they released it but it it's been like that. The other films, they were pretty much as loud. Um, 
And that's the genre of that type of film. If you like that kind of sound, then that's good. I don't think it's very fair on the audience to constantly play music, do loud sounds all the time, and expect an audience to hear all the dialogue. It's unfair. Something has to give. Um, and that's, that's sort of what I think is sort of wrong with the modern cinema at the moment, the sound. So is that no, too controversial? No, 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 no. I'm just thinking no collaborations with Michael Bay anytime soon. <laughs> um, any questions from the audience? Yeah. Just a, a quick one, really. Could you talk about your process of... You touched on it a little bit of when you get given or you get given the script before they start shooting, you start making notes. Yeah, when script you... script's good. I think uh, script gives you an idea of what you're up for, you know, what's going to go unfolding ahead. Although I've learnt... By reading scripts, I should not get too locked down into think the way I think because a script's a script and it still hasn't been shot. And what unfolds on the floor is an, ent- an entity that is not necessarily what was on the page. Um, if you've got something like a book to work from, you know, like some of this stuff comes from books, I read the books because the book's a book and I see it as a book, but I just want to get the background information or the things that aren't in the film or aren't in the script just to give me some ideas as to perhaps there might be some ingredient I could find or some little... Uh, element that would make this interesting um, that that for me is is what it's about but the script is the blueprint so you read the script and the script will have notes in it for sound you know she hears this they do that upstairs there's a noise off screen you know and you're kind of reading it and thinking uh what could what should that sound like you know could it be oh i know i've got a sound for that you know that's that's where my my line of thinking goes is is off into the... But then, of course, once the sound recordist does his job, uh, there's another entity, because he might come and say, listen, you know, we had problems on set, you know, the floors of the room were all creaky, and, you know, I've tried to do as best I could. They wouldn't suppress the floor or costumes, you know, there was a lot of noise on the... And and so the, the, the thing that you read and had an intimacy about it suddenly becomes less intimate because of the, 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 the byproducts of what happens when it's, when it's been shot or filmed or captured... Um, and then we just try and augment it, you know, make it better, clean it up, tidy it up. So talk about the the stage after reading the script or, or coming on board with the film, um, working with the other HODs, like costumes, set design, you know, obviously depending on the, the, what floor people are walking on. How early do those meetings take place? Not as early as they should do. I think uh, there's, there's always budgetary constraints in every project, so that was always the you know, confounding factor of, of every, everything. But I, I firmly believe that everything can, you can save money by getting people involved earlier. Mm. So even though I'm the guy at the back end, I think there is a need for some thinking to be going on in pre-production about how can we involve what we're going to end up with early so we can get maybe some advice. Um, I can give you an example um, from, from a sort of recording point of view that the Game of Thrones series had, which was they were shooting in a, in a, in a very unfriendly um, studio. It was perfect for, from a budgetary point of view. So it's Titanic Studios in Belfast. The very ones. And, um, you know, I only went visiting there because I was over there to do some recording. And um, I t- talked to Rowan, who obviously had gone through his own sort of... Um, process of trying to say to them look we need to do something about this but it's too late we're off you know we're shooting the second unit splinter crew's filming everybody's filming but what had not happened is just thinking about the the acoustic space of the studio so in a studio build even though if you're involved in a production and you're sort of thinking of we're going to shoot in here this looks good it looks like a castle like we just need to build some you know polystyrene walls or put a bit of hardboard down and then paint this 
that's fine. But if you don't consider the sound, you will get what you get in that environment. So if you clap your hands and you get a massive echo, that's going to tell you something. So unlike you know, like Game of Thrones, you don't do a tent sequence in a in in that environment. You know, an intimate tent sequence when everyone shouts a bit louder. There's a you know 15 millisecond delay coming back from their voice. And the, in a tent, you know, the the drama you're trying to create, the mystique you're trying to create, sort of dies immediately. And those poor actors are going to have to recreate that performance again. Which is, you know, for actors, is somewhat traumatic. You know, it's you wouldn't do it with lighting. Do you know what I mean? You wouldn't film on a motorway. You know, you wouldn't film with the wrong background, with a modern landscape in the background. You know, and if you haven't got a CGI budget to, to to mat it out, so why would you conceivably shoot a scene, a dialogue scene that's an intimate scene in an echoey space? But they do. So inevitably, those conversations never get had. I I would love to be involved on projects before they shoot and go on the recce with a recordist to see, one, what sort of place they're filming in. Is there any value in me coming and getting involved in it? In other words, the sound recorders has enough to do in the day of work. Their Their days are so tight to expect to go off and say, oh, could you just go and record that tank that's on set? Or, oh, we've got a few horses, could you go and... They just don't get it done. It's just not possible. Yet those uh, materials, the tank and the horses, are left on standby for a whole day, and they're used for 15 minutes in the day for the shoot, and then they go back onto standby, and they don't do anything. I could go to the set and record things, and I try and make that happen. But, you know, believe, believe me, it's very, very difficult to even persuade anyone to get anyone like us involved at that early stage. But I feel that's the future. I think that collaboration between production and post-production needs to happen. You know, I think it's important. Assistant directors become aware of the fact that even though they're driving the production, the unit forward, trying to get the shots and get it all done in a day, that it's really important to consider when the sound guy says, you know, I've got nothing, you know, because that material will have to be reshot. And what about the shift? Because a lot of events we've had recently, um, production designers and hair and makeup and costume, talking about the fact that the one kind of area that isn't directly part of the film crew is VFX, because that tends to be outsourced to a company um, a lot of the time. Um, but VFX now are no longer post. They're actually brought in possibly way before everyone else. Gravity being, which you had some involvement mm. in, being a really good example. When it comes down to having things like previous uh, visualisation, are you ever approached to supply sounds for that? Yeah, it has happened. I mean, uh, previous is, you know, for me, it's like, well, that's great because we've got something to work with. I mean, I, I, I do enough films with CGI in to know that most of what we're dealing with, as soon as we got something, you know, to be CGI, a little caption comes up at the bottom of the abbot, you just know we're in trouble, you know, because it's not there then, and we're doing the sound. By the time we get to the mix, it's still CGI to come, you know, and you think, well, it'd be nice if it came before we finish the mix. <laughs> and then eventually CGI arrives on the day that we're laying back the soundtrack. Well, that's perfect, but it isn't really. It's the most... Uh, the worst place for us because we've got no way of actioning any of the events. And so, you know, in terms of the way CGI works in films now, because it's a, in a developing and an evolving process, they should be in up front, which they now are. Most of the companies, if they've got a bid in on a film, they will be involved in the in the shooting process if there's something to do with viz effects going on. And and in some ways, the sound should apply in the same way that there should be some, you know, connection between the sound recordist and the post-production sound guys. And I think, in, you know, I'm just looking at numbers here. If you were to go to a crew, most of you have some experience with film crews, and say, right, where are the sound people? They're the three people standing there, and over there is the 800 people that are the crew. 
all those 800 people, are, their job is to visually get the film and supply the goods that are on the film. Those three people are there to do the sound. There are only three of them. And you think if they put their hand up, excuse me, sorry, could I just... There, anyone's going to be in their favour because those 800 people need to go to lunch or they need to go home or, you know, could you all just stand still for a minute? You know, it's not going to happen. But if there was someone like myself there who's nothing to do with that 800 people's worth of crew and I'm, I'm there to, you know, supervise the sound and I can go to the lighting cameraman and say, you know what, those HMI lights are way too loud and, you know, the sound record is getting nothing. We're going to be in big trouble. We're going to be looking at a massive budget overhead for getting the actors back. You know, he's going to say, well, what can I do? Well, first thing you can do is get better lights. Two, you can get that jenny and move it another 100 metres away. And it, it, it's nothing, it's not rocket science, it's practical things. But all it does is attain to capturing the sound in a quality way. And the sound records, all these team want to do. That's what they're, they're there for, you know, assistant sound, sound maintenance and the sound uh, re-recording. So that's what they're there to do, to get the sound on the day. I could just go along and help them do that. And if they're struggling, I could then go off and pick up the things that they've not managed to record, which is the beautiful chateau we happen to be in, has beautiful doors and lovely windows and things. And, you know, sound guys, I don't know how many sound guys are here, but we have an obsession with doors. <laughs> we are obsessed with doors. We go, I go through a door, I go, door, open, and it goes, mm. I go, wow. <laughs> you know, you know, I'm just going to get so the this mic. Door, this door here <laughs> yeah, yeah. keeps going. I just go and get the mic and I'm off recording doors, you know, and my wife's going, what, what are you doing? You know, I'm recording the door. Why are you recording the door? Because it sounds good, you know, because I won't be here again. You know, and things like Barton Fink, yeah. which Skib Livesey always goes on about, is the door of his studio. You know, he opened this hotel door, and that was the door that ended up in the film because it was the door that he liked, you know, and it made this particular noise. But, you know, we have an obsession with doors. But they get neglected. Things happen on set where you hear the actor say his lines, period films particularly, and they walk off in their beautiful shoes in, off in this echoey room to the door and open it. And they just close the door, and the echo of the door just closes, and you go, and cut, right on the end of the echo. You think, what? There's a matter of them. Because he's out of shot, because it's, think, it's over, so it's cut, move on. But for us, it's not, because the echo's still going. You know what I mean? I want, I want the echo, I want the door decay. So I'll end up going back and recording it. You know what I mean? It's just, it seems like all, almost so pointless, but so obvious, like the nose on my face. These things are there, but they all cost money. So you, you're always fighting that eternal... Well, we haven't got the money for that. Uh, you mentioned Doors. It's a story, I hope it's not apocryphal, of uh, Gene Roddenberry being interviewed uh, about Star Wars many years ago, the original TV series. And someone asked about the sh sh doors opening and closing, and apparently the guy who worked in the studio and sound had just gone on a holiday to Japan where they just have the paper houses and the sliding doors, and apparently he was just obsessed with the sound of it and came back and was told, you're on this sci-fi series, and he went... I've got a great idea for the doors. So they actually designed, apparently designed the doors around Japanese houses and not, not putting the sound on afterwards. I think, you know, you, I don't want to make the audience conscious of this, but you should pay attention to doors in films <laughs> because you can tell when someone's spent some time at them and when people haven't spent some time at them, you know. And there, there is a, there's a curse, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you this because I think it's funny. There is, there is a, a sound effects series called the Premier Edition Hollywood Edge Hollywood Edge were a company called Sound Deluxe in the United States who went bust recently because they basically just did. And um, 
they have a door, and it seems to be the editor's favourite door. So every editor seems to have this library on their machine. Whenever somebody leaves the room, they put this damn door in. I think it's PE8 band 16 or something. But it is basically the same <laughs> damn door, and I refuse to put it in. And it's just, it's, uh, it's, you, I spot it in movies or TV shows and think, my God, that got in again. You know, it's snuck in again. Oh, it's stuck in again. You know, and it gets in, and I do believe it's because uh, the sound editors or sound people have put in another one. You know, they've, they've cut another one for that shot or that series or whatever. And the director's going, oh, I quite like what we had in the Avid. And they fish it out of the Avid track and they put it in. And that's how it gets in. And, and the poor sound guy's sitting there going, God, all my contemporaries, all my colleagues are just going to hate me. Because we all know it. You know, it's got a particular sound to it. And it's uh, dreadful. So if you can avoid using that door, I'd be really grateful. And that's a door story. I think it was the third time that I'd seen the double that finally the thing that I realised that made me feel so unnerved is that the sound of his footsteps is not actually at all in sync with him walking. No, no. And There's a story to be told here. I think uh, I, I, I can only give you a sort of uh, summary of what I found out from being at Richard's house when we met up with Chris. And Richard's not interested in anything being right. He likes everything to be wrong. And that might be because of his sort of comic background, I don't know. But he has definitely got his own agenda in terms of what is a soundtrack. And he knows what he wants... Uh, and I basically offered up a sort of a palette of material for them to work with and see if that would help the edit, because they were struggling with a couple of areas. And uh, my, my friend Chris said to me, thanks for all that stuff, it's really good. Has Richard listened to it? Well, not really. No, we've moved it to a different place. What? They'd taken things that I'd made for the lift to somewhere else and things like that. And then there was a comment I had when I was with him, which was they rather liked... There's a scene where... Um, Jesse Eisberg's walking down, uh, it's not in this clip, but he's walking next to himself yeah. down a corridor, and it's their footsteps, and they literally sort of snuffled some sound from another movie, and Richard rather liked that, and Chris did say, well, it's not in sync, Richard, and he went, aye, that's perfect, that's just what I want. And it was the sound that you of footstep recordings that they used to do years ago um, uh, in the sort of 60s, I think, when they used optical track and compressed everything really tight. And it was from the film Point Blank. And I think even though they did a conventional Foley session for the film, Richard just kept on saying, you know what, I really liked what we had before. Um, hence the bit where he walks off when yeah. the, the boss of the office walks off. I would suspect, and I wasn't there, that Richard probably went, is that the real feet, you know, the Foley recording of the feet? Mm, don't we have anything else? And they would have found something else that sounded a bit wrong. And he would have gone, perfect, that's just what I want. <laughs> And, you, you know, in, in some ways, you get this with sound. You kind of go to the table with what you think is the right thing, but the filmmaker's got another agenda. And I can think of Wes Anderson as a great example. Yeah. Even I, again, I was just hired as an effects editor on that film. Wes's desires and needs for his soundtracks are very precise. He's very, very conscious of what he's putting in. And none of it's very elaborate. It's very minimalistic. It's very, very simple. And it's already pre-chosen. In other words, he would have gone through a whole process of an, 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 analysing what those sounds were and whether they were right or wrong for what he was trying to do. And they get, he gets a certain kind of sound to his films. And it's because he's very involved in it. That must be quite a pleasure to actually have to work with a director. Yeah. Even it's if it's offbeat, they still have an absolute passion for creating a sound, creating this universe. I think it can be horribly frustrating and it can also be quite, enli <laughs> quite enlightening because you, you are taken to places that's not your comfort zone. So you don't know where we where are we going with this, and it does feel very odd. You know, I remember in Fantastic Mr. Fox putting in 
he drives his motorbike, and we had a Harley Davidson motorbike. It seemed like the most appropriate thing, but he had something else, like, I don't know, a sort of trials bike that was slowed down in the cutting copy on the Avid. And, uh, you know, we played him the, the new version, the cut I'd done of it, and he was like, it doesn't feel right. Doesn't doesn't belong, you know. Play me what's in the Abbot, and of course we play that, and it's slightly, you know, retro, kind of thin, mono, not much, not much excitement going on. Perfect, and you can't argue. You can't say mine's better than yours. You have to go with that's their, it's their film. They get what they want. It didn't change the movie much, you know. The imitation game as a movie was the way it was seen at the end. A few scenes changed position, narrative-wise, but. The cut that Billy cut was the cut that I finished with, and it literally pretty much stayed the way it was. The thing that was changing a lot was the shot of the tank, funny enough, hmm. because we started with an arc. It went from the spinning wheels to an archive of a panzer tank. Then it went spinning wheels. The next picture I got, it was a drawing, you know, animation of a tank, uh, and the, the, the helmet had appeared, so I started concentrating on helmets getting squashed in mud. Um, and then... The next time I saw it, it started getting better and better. And when you look at it now, that's 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 visual effects. But it's very difficult to tell that that's a visual effects shot and not a real shot. But it had a sort of dissolve effect. I was attempting to try and go Bletchley to Battlefield. I'm always very conscious of um, transitions between scenes. You know, you can do the hard cut, which is a very you know it's a statement sound, or you can do this sort of like drift across where you take a sound from the incoming or you pre-lap it so you hear it before you see it or you can merge the two together so they morph across so something in one scene becomes the sound of the next scene and I tried to make the rhythm of the tank match the rhythm of the rotors and I thought it would be a big dissolve that they do a visual kind of thing I was in my head, I was Bletchley to Battlefield you know, this is the connection we could do it sonically it never really works out like It's actually only when you finally have the subjective viewpoint of the Jesse Eisenberg character do those clicks and sounds come in so it's almost like his brain working like that. And likewise, you get the advan- the good side of the mechanised world of this machine, and then you and flip to the, to the horrific side. side. Yeah, the dark side. I mean, there's, an, there's another scene in the film earlier on where uh, Benedict is going to Bletchley on the train, and that one's a music-driven sequence. I always knew it was music-driven, but I was very conscious of trying to involve the sound of the station, the, the um, evacuees, the children, the doors slamming. I, mean, I, I like that period. You know, the things that make a historical film are the period sounds, which are really hard to find, you know, or have a collection of. But, you know, slamming doors, I do remember from my childhood, you know, so I was very conscious of getting slamming doors in the right place that wouldn't interfere with it. And, of course, they were changing their minds a little bit with the archive, but there was a point where we would go to... The, to to archive Nazi land and they'd be marching down the street and I have got genuine recordings from the 1940s of, of Nazi marching and I've got obviously lots of recordings of marching feet and I try and make those feel a bit more present so there's an archive underneath real sounds but then we go to the train you know he's on the train looking at the child that looks very similar to him who's looking at a crossword puzzle and um I wanted to get a connection between Nazi land and the train, going back again. So the rhythm of the marching became the rhythm of the train. It's only subjective stuff. It's very subliminal and depends on how the levels are balanced in the final. But it, 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 it sort of, I think, draws the audience in. It's like the beginning of a movie for me in the cinema because you're in darkness. It's not like television. But in, you start in darkness, you end up with all the people who've paid for it 
having their name on the screen, you know, Weinstein, this, that. And then the film starts. But I like to get something in at the beginning. And I think a lot of sound guys, I notice some of the, the uh, contemporaries in, in America, they do the same thing. They try and get in on the on the logo. And there was, like, forbidden ground at the logo. Don't go there. That's, you know, Warner's or that's Disney. and you don't. Do it. But now they're all just really getting into it, you know. So you get lots of sound effects that go with the opening credit sequence of a movie. But it's just it's another device. It's a sonic device to draw the audience into the opening, whatever it is, to give you the, the, the scary bit at the beginning or the in-depth view of something. Actually, if you see the new Craze film, that's got um, quite a, a lot of music and sounds right before the opening credits. Right. Any logo appears on the screen. Um, I'm aware we're quite close with time. If anyone has... Any questions at all? I was wondering who your favourite director is and why, because you're talking about directors who are quite difficult. So who would you say is... Uh, well, you want my, my, the ones I've worked with or just ones I the think... The ones you've worked with. For me, Danny Boyle is a director I'd love to work with again. Unfortunately, he works with another sound guy. But uh, Danny, for me, was your, your perfect filmmaker. And, and I'm not just saying that because of Danny getting an Oscar in, in Slumdog Million or anything, but he is a genuinely good director. He's articulate, he's thoughtful, he's kind, he's, em- he's empathetic to sound. He never knows what he wants, but he knows what he doesn't like. So he'll tell you, I don't like that, or I do like that. But he will go back, he'll revisit things. If he thinks later on something's not quite the way it was, he's happy to revisit it again and go again. But he's very, very, uh, for me, as I said, I'd love to work with him because he really knows how sound works. In other words, what sound brings to a movie and how it can enhance the film. I think he's it's, it's, it's always... I only ever did a TV thing with him, but it was, you know, it was a pleasure. You know, and he's an absolute gentleman when everything's going wrong. So what, what more could you wish for, really? You know, so having somebody who's patient and you know, can see that you're dying on your feet because the gear's collapsing and is willing to say, don't worry about it, you know, I'll go and have a coffee or something. You know, he's a very pleasant chap. As an extension of that, he, he's been quite amazing at the cutting edge of uh, digital cameras within mainstream cinema. Yeah. Um, just technology from your point of view, um, has it proven to be a good thing as it's developed over the last 15, 20 years, and where do you see it going? Um, for me, I don't think I'd be having this conversation with you guys if I hadn't, yeah, if the computer hadn't come along, to be honest, because um, you know, I, I did a lot of different stuff, but it wasn't as uh, creative as it can be now with these particular tools, although I think there's a bit of a lean towards thinking that the, the tools are going to give you the the answer to your creative needs. In other words, that these machines are some sort of magical... Press a button and out pops creative ideas. doesn't... Trust me, it doesn't work like that. They do not give you nothing. They just give you a lot of problems, generally. But they are very good when you know how they work and what you can do with them and what you can bring to them. Um, what, what makes them work well is having fresh, new new ideas and trying to do things in a way in which... You know, I think subtlety is a great thing in sound, but it's not not the most favourite thing for certain filmmakes. But, you know, certain uses of subtle sounds. I don't know if anyone saw a film called Ida. Mm. It was a Polish film about a, a nun. That film was mixed in mono. There's, it's so quiet. It, you, you really have to be in a perfect cinema to hear it properly. But it's a beautiful soundtrack. It's so minimalistic, but it's in mono, one speaker in the middle of the room. No technology. You know, it's very, very... But it's very encapsulating. It really draws you in. And sound can be like that. But it... For me, I think the technology, it's there to be used, you know, and it's going to go to better places. You know, the, the fidelity of the cinema has definitely improved. Dolby Atmos as an experience is sensational, and, you know, gravity, I think, really took it to the boundaries of where it should have been used. 
smashing everyone over the head with orcs wasn't probably the right thing for the format. But nonetheless, that's that's what they do with it, isn't it? They, they invent a new thing that plays it extra loud. So let's put everything through the speakers extra loud. Great. But it's what the audience get out of it, I think, is important. And I think as, as filmmakers and as technicians, as sound people, we should always be aware of what is our audience's perception of that and how can we improve it. Because all sound's doing is focusing the, the viewer. You're, you're basically honing the audience's view down, or you're basically giving them a feeling of an environment that's not there. It's interesting you mentioned, Ida, um, probably the most art house film, I think, that's been shot um, using Atmos is Wong Kar Wai's martial arts film, The Grand Master. And that. it's astonishing. The opening sequence happened, is a, a fight in the rain. And I've just never had an experience of being surrounded completely <laughs> by a rainstorm and then the sound of every single punch um, but even in the quieter scenes, it's it's beautifully used. And I'd kind of hope that a lot more films that aren't big blockbusters yeah. would sort of go down that route and understand the use of sound and how it's important. I mean, I think Atmos, you know, I, I was a bit sceptical at first because the demos I saw, I just thought, oh, God, not another bloody um, Dolby thingy, Bob. You know, they had 7-1, you know, 5-1, Dolby Digital, you know, I've been there for all of this. It's great. You know, it's nice to see that the formats are changing, but then the filmmakers take them and make loud, louder films. And, you know, here came, here came Atmos, and the first thing I saw was The Hobbit, and it was so loud, I just thought, I can't bear this. And there's subwoofers at the back and subwoofers at the front, and just being surrounded by noise. It didn't seem like, what was the necessity of this? But when it's quiet, when everything goes absolutely silent and you hear one sound, and it moves across there, there's more emotion in that than there is in the thousand explosions. You know, for me, that is what the format's for. It's for taking you to another dimension, and to do that, you have to close things down, you have to separate it, space it out a bit, instead of this frenetic use of images flickering and things. And you can, I think it's, it's yet to be discovered, I think. I think someone's yet to take the format with the right film, and take the audience to a new place. And, you know, there's lots of possibilities with it, but I don't think that possibility is necessarily in the dynamic rangeland, that everything should be super big and massive and loud. Yes, it's good when you do it, but, you know, don't, you don't rely on us as a constant. You know, so, sounds that are quite atmospheric. You know, someone needs to do a, a bit like a wildlife film. You know, I mean, I think for me, when I watch uh, the BBC's wildlife programmes on 1080p just at the moment, not you know, just standard 10 HP, 2K, whatever, I still sit there going, wow, you know, to me it's quite fascinating looking at these creatures on that size screen. Um, when we get to 8K, it's going to be, we'll feel like we'll probably then, it'll probably be in 3D by then. But I'm still in awe of it, you know, I still actually enjoy watching wildlife films in that format because it really takes me there. Um, I just, you know, when the sound goes to that place as well, I think there's a great possibility really. Thank you very much to Creative England and Creative Skillset and also to BAFTA for organising this event. And most of all, can you please join me in thanking Andy Kendi? I didn't know we were out of time. Yeah, really. It was two hours.